0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 21st of July, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the depths of the Netherlands.
1: Um, Okay, so uh, let's put uh, June Rain on screen. Now, of course, uh, the MHRA's position, June Rain's position was that uh, it was up for, up, for the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation to advise on whether children would be vaccinated as part of the deployment programme. Well, the JCVI has now given their advice and I thought it would be worth just uh, running through this. So let's uh, have a look. Following a request from the Department of Health and Social Care for advice on a possible extension of the COVID-19 vaccination programme, the JCVI has looked at the available evidence around vaccinating children and young people under the age of 18. From today, the JCVI is advising that children at increased risk of serious COVID-19 disease are offered the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Uh, That includes children aged 12 to 15 with severe neurodisabilities, Down syndrome, immunosuppression, and multiple or severe learning disabilities. So that is their position. Um, They go on to say then, um, the JCVI is not currently advising routine vaccination of children outside these groups based on the current evidence. Uh, As evidence shows that COVID-19 rarely causes severe disease in children without underlying health conditions. At this time, the JCVI's view is that the minimal health benefits of offering universal COVID-19 vaccination to children do not outweigh the potential risks. Uh, Almost all children and young people are at very low risk from COVID-19. Symptoms when seen are typically mild and fewer uh, than 30 children have died because of COVID-19 in the UK as of March 2021. Uh, So Professor Anthony Harndon, who's the Deputy Chair of the JCVI, said the primary aim of the vaccination program has always been to prevent hospitalizations and deaths based on the fact that previously well children, uh, if they do get COVID-19, are likely to have a very mild form of the disease. The health benefits of vaccinating them are small. So that seems to uh, uh, be that for now and and we wait to see what happens. But I was interested in the groups uh, of children that they feel do need to be vaccinated?
0: Uh, I don't quite know how to describe this one, Mike. First point I'd make is that they keep talking about the evidence, but we never see the evidence uh, for the safety uh, of of the vaccines or the risks of the vaccines. Uh, That's not coming from the MHRA. It's not coming through the yellow card system because there's no analysis by the MHRA or um, uh, pharmacovigilance team on what the real risks are. So they talk about the evidence, but it's never presented. You've then got a group of children, some of whom, well, they're all vulnerable that you've got immuno uh, problems. And yet we are seeing um, interference with the immune system by the vaccines. We're not seeing any safety documentation. I think they are deliberately targeting this extremely vulnerable group. And I wonder what the outcome is going to be for them of of vaccination, a double jab, maybe a triple jab.
1: Mm.
0: Well, yeah, I, I I think people have really got to start asking the questions because they're coming for the children, and that is an extremely vulnerable group of children.
1: Okay, well, let's uh, bring Alex onto the program. Welcome to pro- program, Alex. And a uh, communication from uh, a member, a viewer, saying a member of the vaccine a harm group with more than a thousand members and have been dismayed by the lack of coverage in the mainstream media about this issue. While visiting my sister, I came across a recent copy of the Wigan Observer, uh, dated June the 15th, 2021, that I thought you might find of interest. It highlights an issue that I think needs addressing. It seems to be in very poor taste for an editorial comment that appeared on the letters page to plead with readers to get the vaccine while uh, discussing uh, what was no doubt an incredibly painful death of this poor lady after her COVID vaccine. While the main article does mention the government's yellow card scheme, there's no mention of actual data. Only the presumption that these vaccine blood clot deaths are incredibly rare. Uh, that's something that many other articles covering vaccine deaths have been guilty of across the mainstream press. Uh, the vaccine harm group on Telegram uh, and the ones on Facebook, or sorry, the one on Facebook, have been sadly shut down. I've shared many of these articles, yet I'm yet to see one in in which a bereaved family member urges for vaccine caution or for the article to give the actual number of deaths involved. I am not anti-vax by any means, but wish for a more informative approach uh, from the mainstream media that has so much power to influence the decisions of people, not least parents. Uh, Considering getting their children vaccinated in months ahead, my local paper, the Liverpool Echo, has not mentioned the yellow card scheme once as far as I've seen other than the reader's comments, stories. So more needs to be done to raise awareness about the risks involved. Uh, And we have uh, uh, the article here, Alex.
2: Yes, the viewer in question in Merseyside in the Wirral sent us these shots uh, of the paper that she found while she was over in Wigan. And this enabled me with the headline in question, Heartbroken Dad Seeks Answers About Death of Beloved Daughter. And viewers should see the positioning of that uh, before we move on is uh, on the left hand page and on the right there's an um, editorial in a deceptive place, which we're going to zoom in on shortly, and then the Your Views, the letters page, basically. So the 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 the, re- the uh, reinforcing message was on the same page as Reader's Letters. This enabled me to go and find the article on the online version of the paper on the next slide. Here we are, Wigan today. <clears throat> and the headline here is the same one, Subhead. Despite the family tragedy, though, he is, this is the father of the uh, quite young lady who died, tragically, is still urging residents to get their jabs. And let's go on and see what's uh, the main angle taken on the bereaved father, whose name appears shortly. He says, I think people should be given the true figures on how many people have had issues with these blood clots. I don't think we actually know the true numbers. I just want some transparency. Notice, Mike and Brian, that this isn't in the subheader. Let people make their own minds up, direct quote from the bereaved father. I want to know what Vanessa's cause of death was, his daughter but she was fit and healthy and had no underlying symptoms at all. So why did this happen? I know the government's saying the vaccine is safe and these clots are rare, he adds, but when you're sat in a crematorium with 29 other people, because the one in 100,000, well, it's a bit more than that if you look at the yellow card data, is your daughter, it's not the same. Now, let's go and have a look at the zoomed-in version of this. And, of course, a lot more readers should be doing this with their local newspapers and communicating with us about their findings. So the right-hand inset on the uh, original shot was clear jab message despite tragedy. This I managed to transcribe the key bit of for clarity of reading, uh, reading. Phil Jones's daughter, Vanessa Newton, died aged just 45 a few weeks after she had had her first dose of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine, says the editorial, comment on the same page as the reader's letters. He is firm, this is not all of what the father said, Mr Jones, but it's what they're deciding to spin, he is firm that this story should not put anyone off getting a jab to slow the spread of the Delta variant of the novel coronavirus. Hold that in mind given what we're going to cover later in the news. Residents should take heed of Mr Jones's word, says the comment, especially if they are wavering about having a COVID-19 vaccine and should book an appointment when they're given the chance. So very questionable methods here, and I'm not suggesting that the same person wrote this that wrote the much more favor favorable and, and balanced coverage on the left-hand page, the actual write-up of the interview with Mr. Jones. Uh, but this is a, a, a prompting, really, to many of our viewers in Britain, or indeed wherever you are, to look at your local press coverage and speak directly to the—I would say the more the editors than the journalists themselves—to give the, 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 the to cut the journalists more slack. And where the editor, editors are saying you ought to be getting the jabs despite the risks and almost putting words in the mouths of the interviewees which were not there when the original write-up was done, then you need to uh, be getting on their case about that, otherwise it won't happen. Indeed.
0: I, I think that's a pretty outrageous editorial because, of course, it's, it's absolutely not what the gentleman said.
1: Um, okay, well, let's move on to this. Now, back in March, uh, we uh, told you all that uh, the MHR had appointed Dr. Alison Cave as its chief safe, chief safety officer. Now, uh, just to make it clear and remind everybody, uh, this is a new role. Um, this role did not previously exist, so the MHR did not MHRA did not have a chief safety officer at the time that uh, the uh, COVID nineteen vaccines began the rollout. Uh, uh, well, she has been uh, taken up her role. I think on Wednesday. Um, Uh, Monday, sorry. Uh, Today, I start my new role as the MHRA's Chief Safety Officer, where my work will begin immediately. Uh, I'm joining at a time, she said, in which the scientific, technological and analytical landscape is rapidly changing. I look forward to working with colleagues at the MHRA to continue to improve our medicines and devices' safety surveillance in the UK. So this is all about safety surveillance. Um, I'm not sure what that has to do with safety. Itself, but anyway, it's about surveillance. Hopefully, we're going to see, therefore, now that she's in post, a massive upgrade in the quality of the data which is coming out of the MHRA with respect to uh, the COVID nineteen vaccines. Because at the moment, uh, we can only say that it is not fit for purpose. Uh, and just to remind you, Alison Cave then uh, is uh, she's a pharmacologist. She's got a PhD in biochemistry. Um, she has worked for the uh, uh, Medicines Control Agency. Uh, also the MHRA, uh, she's worked uh, at the European Medicines Agency uh, at Innovate UK, uh, at the Wellcome Trust and at King's College London. So that's uh, a bit of her background. And uh, Brian, hopefully we will see an almost immediate uh, upgrade in the quality of the data that comes out of the MHRA.
0: I think I think we'll see an <laughs> We'll see an increase in the amount of talk about safety, but we won't actually see the evidence to support it. What we do need to talk about at this point is SIN. So let's let's talk about SIN. Uh, What are we talking about? Well, not what you might uh, think, uh, because uh, the SIN is the Science and Innovation Network. And uh, we've been paying attention to quite a lot that's been going on behind the scenes with government. Um, So let's take you to this. Uh, so this was published on the 16th of April 2019, but it was Sin France organises the first UK-France bilateral workshop on behavioural science at the at Paris British Embassy. An impact story about how Sin France initiated UK-France uh, cooperation on the use of behavioural science in health public policies. So I wonder in that local paper, when we started to see the editor overriding what was truth uh, by giving his own opinion rather than the opinion of the person writing in, was that the use of uh, applied behavioral science in that local paper? Who knows? So what have these uh, people uh, been up to? Well, this is a bit more detail. On the 7th of February, the Paris British Embassy Sin team organised the quote, influencing behaviours through science, UK, France perspectives. And this was all done at the British Ambassador's residence. Does that remind you of anything? Uh, It
1: reminds me of the Franco-British Council and the Defence Pact that came out of that. Just uh, that was 2019, of course.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so the... um, piece here goes on to say the aim of the workshop was to establish dialogue, share knowledge and experience, as well as promote cooperation between the UK and French experts at the academic and policy level. And uh, goes on, it's thanks to a Paris-hosted dinner in the ambassador's residence that this workshop came about. The September 2017 dinner in honour of Chris Whitty, Chief Scientific Advisor to the Department of Health and Social Care, gathered several French health experts from government policy, academia and industry. The dinner bore fruit in three particular areas, genomics, health data sharing and behavioural science. So these are all topics that the public at the moment in UK totally unaware of, high level policy meetings going on, UK public not told at all. So let's have a look at what they were dealing in. Genomics, first of all, the UK and France, it said started collaboration in 2017. Genomics England and Avian, France's National Health Alliance, signed a joint collaboration document in 2018 to quote, co-fund new technologies to accelerate genomic medicine and research collaboration. And I'm going to suggest uh, a lot more work to be done, but I'm going to suggest that the whole of the vaccine drive is tied in with this drive for genomic medicine, but we'll see what uh, evidence comes up to support that statement. Health data, both the UK and France have placed access to data across the health research and R&D, research and development community, as national priorities. Not keeping people healthy, but we're gonna grab their data. Sin France is working with relevant parties in both countries to establish dialogue and explore potential cooperation in an area designed to build a more innovative and efficient health and care system. So we're not gonna help people get better, we're just making a more innovative system. Meanwhile, the carnage goes on. And this one here, Applying Behavioral Science and Social Science in health. Apparently in the uh, February 2019 Paris workshop, expert scientists and policy met for the first time to discuss the use of, quote, behavioural science and evidence based policies in government and public policy to answer this question how can UK and, France, and French scientists and experts work together with policymakers to produce the most effective evidence based policies? So I just want to reinforce it with this Was the UK public ever told that the NHS based uh, healthcare system? had been replaced by sin. And of course the answer is not, but uh, this is uh, the way that politics are conducted. So the public never informed. In fact, politicians in Westminster never informed of the true policies. And if we just join this together with the start of the news, uh, where we're looking at how um, media manipulates what's happening, let's bring in uh, BBC media action. We're gonna be talking about them a little bit later. Uh, but here was their headline from 2016: uh, Can mass media cause change? A randomised control trial finds out. And this is what they had to say: Can the mass media ch- uh, cause changes in an audience? Sorry, can the mass media cause changes in an audience's knowledge, attitudes, and intention to practice behaviours? A BBC Media Action we have just successfully conducted a randomised. Control trial to investigate this chain of causality in a primetime health TV drama. So you're using a drama in order to change the way that people uh, thought in Bangladesh. Here it is, um, it's called Sailing Against the Tide. It resembles many primetime family dramas with storylines around the themes of falling in love, marriage, and the important role that mothers-in-law play in Bangladeshi marriages. But the production team also weaves key elements of health knowledge into the dramatic arc, such as the recommendation that four antenatal childcare visits are ideal for the pregnant mother. And uh, it goes on to say that 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 program is closely linked to a follow-up discussion show after the drama in which some of the characters from the show, a medical expert and a real-life contributor, review some of the key issues explored in the episode so uh, very vulnerable people i would suggest in Bangladesh BBC using them for an experiment to see how they can apply mass media to change how they think about medic medical matters and of course that is exactly what's happening in this country around the application of vaccines where the line from the BBC is simply take the vaccine we're not going to talk about risks.
1: Uh, no, Alex, um, we've been sent uh, an interesting photograph, I believe this is a, a sign on the door of, well, who is it the sign on the door of?
2: He's uh, a French member of Parliament, member of the Assemblée Nationale. Uh, the person who tweeted it is a very big hitter in French law, he's Maître Di Fabrizio who is leading the challenge on vaccine passports, in which France has taken many strides forward to totalitarianism, as we've been covering. So the top line has been cut off where the name would be. After that, député, Member of Parliament. Uh, this uh, the, Below that, Bureau Parlementaire, so my Parliamentary Office, opening hours, first floor. And then the key bit, which uh, has been ringed in red. La permanence est interdite aux animaux et aux personnes sans pass sanitaire. Admission will be refused to animals and to persons without a COVID pass. Uh, So, Metro de Fabrizio, in tweeting this, uh, said that for the sake of decency, which I think is pretty too gentlemanly of him, he's not naming the French Member of Parliament uh, involved. Uh, Meanwhile, down on the French... Hold on, Alex.
1: Sorry, Alex. I just wanted to say, it was interesting to me that animals came first. So, he he seemed to be putting those without a COVID pass below animals.
2: Well, uh, Mike, you'll you'll recall, you know, the old... um, Yes. Uh, chatter there used to be in Ireland about the, the London and Birmingham bread and breakfasts in the 50s, 60s, 70s that had these signs before it became illegal. No entrance to blacks, dogs and Irish. And that was, of course, a, 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 a pointed insult at particularly the Irish. And that seems to be what's going on. But down on the French Riviera, this tip also comes to me from the same associates, the stalwart Georg- Georgia uh Nice Matin, one of the big papers down there, is reporting that in no lesser city than Toulon, Brian will know it, as the base of the French uh, Mediterranean fleet. These billboards have been going up. Uh, Emmanuel Macron dressed up as Adolphe. His party, La République en Marche, has been symbolized as as if it would be a swastika with the uh, white, red and black color scheme. And uh, Mr. Macron, uh, Adolphe Macron's slogan is, Obey, fais-toi vacciner. Obey and get yourself jabbed. Uh, There might not be chance that this is in Toulon, of course, because the French Mediterranean fleet has a less than glorious wartime collaboration record. And uh, this may be their way of expiating their sins in the local community, shall we say.
1: Uh, Yeah, but it's not just the uh, French parliamentarians that are uh, taking arrogant positions.
2: No, so let's have a listen to this. This is from the 15th of July. This is Vera Hobhouse, W-E-R-A, Vera Hobhouse. She's originally from Hanover, a very posh town in Northern Germany. She's married into uh, an English family, Mr. Hobhouse, and been uh, in Britain since uh, 1989 or so. Uh, But here we are, Uh, she's speaking to the, uh, well, effectively to the, the leader of the House, uh, the controller of government, business and commons time, uh, Jacob Reesbog, we've cut out his response, but we just want to listen to what Vera Hobhouse said. So if people were thinking French MPs are more arrogant about this than ours ever would be, admittedly, this is a foreign born one, a German, quite noble lady, so perhaps a bit blunter than uh, a than British born MP would be. But here's what she had to say on the same theme of, uh, of COVID sanitary measures.
1: Uh, A contributor this morning on Radio
0: 4 said it's only ever posh people who who say that the less fortunate people in our communities don't want to be told by posh people what to do. In fact, they do. Um, Or they want to at least get um, some responsible guidance and the complete abdication of responsible guidance from this government. Um, I find shameful and I indeed, Mr Speaker, will continue to wear a face covering in this chamber.
2: So for those listening in audio only, you might not have fully appreciated that the, the head rolling, the, um, well, the head shaking, the eye rolling and the, the shoulder heaving was part of the, dare I say, posh girl act, making it abundantly clear that she did actually mean what she was saying. Um, because, you know, she, she was uh, using her body irony, body language irony um, to, uh, to join that Radio 4 contributor in expressing the position that it's only posh people who think the plebs don't want leading by the posh. And when she she got a lot more serious with her body language as well as her tone of voice to say, in fact, they do. They do want us posh people to take a lead. So because the government's not doing it, uh, we enlightened posh people must wear masks even when it's no longer law or guidance.
0: Um, but correct me if I didn't see something, but she said she continued to wear a mask in this house, but she wasn't wearing a mask.
1: Yeah, they're only required to wear a mask when they're sitting down. Oh, that, that virus
0: day. is just so cunning, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, yeah, when they sit down, the virus appears. Amazing. Um, so uh, some tweets about this.
2: Christian Kalki is a good channel that could do with some more subscribers, and he's entitled his upload of this clip, Vera House." And uh, here I engage engaged in a bit of dialogue with a gentleman named Jay, if that is his real name, who made a fair point, actually. He says, he says that this clip has been shorn of context and basically says well, he's, he carries no candles for mainstream politicians, least of all the Lib Dems, who in Britain have the reputation of being the most statist of all the major parties. Uh, he has, says they have ridiculous beliefs, but not that ridiculous. Come on. So he thinks there's ironic context cut out. So I replied to that saying, actually... This was the beginning, the first paragraph of a speech in which Madame Hobhouse went on to ask a question. I think she was asking about sin, actually, Brian, but uh, I can't remember the acronym in full, but that'll come in a moment. But anyway, she wanted to add the word mathematics to a particular science quango uh name and that i said that the whole point of the forum in which it happened which is the business of the house debate is that there is no context everyone stands up uh, as they're called and simply says i have an axe to grind that this is not being given parliamentary time and just in passing you can see that uh, the hansard transcript one of the best transcribing services in the world to this day if you look at the next slide uh does actually make that clear that she gets up on her feet and uh The first thing she says straight away is um, uh, her her beef about mask wearing. Uh, There we are. That's come up now uh, for us. So on the business of the House, you can just see that the member for Bath, Liberal Democrat Vera Hobhouse, simply stands up and says that apropos of nothing about COVID. It's what was really on her mind. And at the end of that clip, then she picked up her paper to start her main point. uh, So there was no other context. She really meant it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there. Uh, Also, please do share any material you find on various platforms. Of course, the ukcolumn.org website as well. Uh, But we're also on brand new Tube, on Rumble, on BitChute, on Odyssey. Um, And uh, Patrick just wanted me to also remind everybody that uh, his... Old normal T-shirt is uh, absolutely still available. Not very many left, however, so you need to get in quick. Uh, So please do so if you would like one.
0: Yeah, excellent T-shirt. I do love it. Um, Just put up a quick advert that we've been doing some interviews over the last few days uh, with um, qualified scientific experts. And uh, the first of these interviews, No Smoke Without Fire, uh, we're talking to Dr. Harvey Seligman, who's principally talking about uh, vaccines, children and the statistics from Israel, uh, but also other countries across the world. And Dr. Anne-Marie Yim, who's giving her concerns about the vaccine and its effects uh, from her experience in labs. So we hope that that will be uh, published later today. That's part one. Um, Part two is the one that really focuses on the statistics. Both of them, I think, are worth watching as a package. So see if you can devote the time to doing that. And um, an email that came in from a lady called Gillian, which I thought was interesting, she said, thank you and your team. uh, Sorry, you and your team are brilliant. Thank you for what you do in exposing the lies. However, in one of your programmes, you showed a survey on home office surveys, which can't be accessed. I'm not sure what that is at the moment. Well, I'll have a look into that. Uh, but she says she's written to her MP throughout to no avail. And Boris posted a letter to Boris yesterday, been am- unable to get to London Friendly protests and wonder what else I can do to wake people up and stop this awful tyranny. First thing that came into my mind is get on to the uh, local party chairman of your MP to demand um, explanation as to why there was no answer from the MP. But also suggest you make contact as a first step. See if you can find one, two, three other people in your local area that you're able to meet, sit down and have a chat with them about what you can do, because it's out of these very small meetings that very interesting things happen. It may be some targeted email campaign, or it could be some appropriate stickering uh, with an appropriate sticker. So I'd say the first thing is to see whether you can team up with one or two other people because there's always strength in numbers.
1: And uh, that's going to be more and more important because we'll be talking a little bit more about Pegasus in a minute. Uh, And uh, so that should be clear. Now, just to remind everybody that uh, uh, there is another demonstration this weekend, a big demonstration this weekend, if you'd like to attend it in London uh, on Saturday, the 24th of July, 1 p.m. Worldwide Rally for Freedom uh, and also World Ivermectin Day. Now, uh, of course, we know that the British government has begun its trial of, of ivermectin uh, and uh, well, we wait to see whether they do the same hatchet job on ivermectin that they did on hydroxychloroquine um, and uh, well, in the meantime, everybody should be at that event.
0: Uh, multiply, yeah, we just needed to multiply. We need more people and not only, of course, in London.
1: Uh, now, uh, of course, on Monday's uh, programme, we were talking about the uh, demonstration that was taking place outside Parliament Square. Um, that was happening as we were on air. So we weren't able to get uh, all the footage uh, out to you. I want to thank uh, Drew at TV once again, uh, because there was a bit of uh, trouble with the police at this particular demonstration. I'm just fascinated about uh, the types of things that were kicking off. First of all, w- we should say that on On the weekend demonstrations, the policing, the one that I saw was at and and, and the thing that I've seen, the policing is quite low key. Uh, But on this one, one, the police were out with their helmets uh, and battens and so on. Um, So what I want you to have a look at, uh, just watch carefully what happens in the crowd here. Um, We've just taken a small excerpt. Uh, We'll start this video. And we can see that a group of uh, of people push the crowd forward into the police line. um, And uh, Well that looked like a deliberate action. Now at the uh, weekend event on the 26th of June um, there was an event or there was an incident took place outside Downing Street where bottles were thrown into Downing Street and that resulted in a police charge and it looked to me like uh, those bottles or that incident was staged in the sense of there was possibly people there that were not part of the 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 crowd otherwise that took some action that the rest of the crowd weren't uh, weren't actually interested in taking and that seems to be the case here as well i'm particularly interested in uh in, in because this person here seems to be one of the people that has uh, kicked the whole thing off um and on the back of his t-shirt it says uh uh hashtag uh, can you say it hashtag life sorry i've forgotten life,
0: so, life, yes life something power i think yes it is.
1: So, so that, well, you can freeze the screen and you can have a look at that. Um, I'm just interested to see what that hashtag... If life, anybody power knows,
0: resist, right, life, is. life Power Resist. That's
1: right. Life Power Resist. Does anybody know what that hashtag means? And uh, I'd just be interested to know. But anyway, uh, obviously that result, that incident... Uh, was earlier on in the in the events, but then later on uh, it got a bit more aggressive, particularly for one individual, and that was Will from uh,
0: Resistance TB. Yeah. Um,
1: so I'm just going to uh, I'm just going to show a little bit of video here, and the key thing is what led up to this, um, because uh, as you can see, Will is filming uh, here, but he's, it's all very peaceful and quiet. Uh, this policeman, however, is speaking to this lady. And putting on some gloves, and they're padded gloves. So that is very interesting. He's very calm and cool. He's having a normal conversation. It's as if nothing uh, strange is going on. But as soon as Will lifts his camera, as you'll see in one second, the police uh, jump on him at that point. So he's about to lift his camera now, really taking his eye off the or taking the camera off the police line. And the next thing, uh, that's him grabbed, and things get a bit hectic after that. Now I've edited this uh, somewhat, so you'll see what happens next. He is on the ground, uh, and uh, he's being punched by the police. Well, certainly, not all the punches are uh, are are heading home with the full fist, but nonetheless, he has
0: experienced injuries as a result. He's, he certainly has. He's ex- he's experienced a lot of bruising. Most of the punching was on his shoulder. Uh, but he had people obviously kneeling on him and other people were hitting his body. They kept him down for a protracted length of time, which he doesn't understand because he was he was never a threat to them. So that's a, just before you go on, Brian, that's a very interesting point
1: because they could have had him up and they could have had him handcuffed and in the van very quickly. Now I asked Joe Boyd about this because obviously he's been on various uh, demonstrations for many, many years and has plenty of experience of the police under these circumstances. Uh, And he agreed with me that there's a number of possible explanations. Uh, One is that uh, the police, in fact, uh, did this in order to create angst within the crowd. Another is that the police did this in order to create media headlines. Uh, But he also suggested the possibility that they would uh, not move him until they had somewhere to move him to and a clear uh, path to move him to. And one of the things that Will said to us this morning was that, in fact, the crowd here was... uh, it's it sort of in a line so the police couldn't get to the van.
0: Yeah, they formed a human uh, wall to try and stop the police getting him into the van, but the police did achieve that. And ultimately, he was taken to a police station and held for 20 hours. But I think what was going on at this point when they had him on the floor is they were searching his property. They were searching bags and, and pockets. And one of the things he's been accused of is he had a pocket knife And uh, so his camera stick and the pocket knife means that uh, the police are apparently investigating the fact that he could have been a direct threat to them. Um, But Will's opinion is that he was deliberately targeted. He thinks he was targeted because he's been posting the video clips showing and exposing unlawful behavior by the police. Uh, And as he says, the police are facing largely peaceful protesters. Uh, With weapons, they've either got batons or they've got tasers, which are classed as a weapon. Uh, So he is saying we are now witnessing elements of the police completely out of control. So he was held for 20 hours. They denied him writing materials, which I I think is uh, part of his rights when he's there in the uh, cells. And it took them ages uh, to let him see a, um, a lawyer. There was a nurse who eventually came to tend him um but uh basically they didn't bother to take any pictures of the injuries that he sustained now he is dark skinned and but he said i can still see the bruises on my skin but no photographic record was taken by the police obviously they didn't want um, anything uh, like uh, physical damage to uh, cloud their decisions over what he was up to
1: yes um, okay, let's move on to this then. Uh, BBC headline and on the BBC Radio this morning, this is a big issue. UK and France agree deal to tackle rise in channel crossings. Now, it is spectacular how we are effectively merging with France. Brian, we've obviously got a 50-year defence pact. We've talked about that many over many years. You're talking about the behavioural science side of the UK-French collaboration. And now we've got this UK-French collaboration uh, with respect to immigration. And channel crossings which doesn't seem to do anything other than to facilitate the, um, the migration. Um, but what I really wanted to focus on here was just to remind everybody what's going on here. First of all we've got people coming in from the Sahel and, and you know to a certain degree uh, mostly from the Sahel. Um, they're being trafficked so there's a huge industry behind this. Uh, they're coming into the UK um, but they're not just coming into the UK. So if we look at uh, at the map here, um, and I'm going to focus on Lake Chad as one example. The L- Lake Chad area, we've got people being trafficked to the west coast of Africa, also up through uh, the Sahara, to through um, into Libya and into uh, Algeria and so on, and then across into Europe. And that does two things. First of all, it uh, removes people of a certain because these tend to be young men, yeah, uh, predominantly young age. men. Yeah. Uh, it removes young men of a certain age out of the Sahel area. Um, but the other uh, the other thing it does, of course, is it helps break down um, the uh, national identities in, in European countries and so on. But the, uh, but the thing that is never mentioned and never really discussed uh, is, in fact, that the migration isn't just going west and north. It's also going south and it's also causing problems in uh, countries south of the Sahel as well. So we seem to be emptying, I say we, I'm talking about Western, and we'll see why I say this in a second, Uh, Western influences seem to be emptying this region of uh, young men. And the question is, why? Um, Well, I don't really have an answer uh, right now, but I just want to highlight once again, who is operating in this area. It is obviously China's Belt and Road is in there. The EU is very interested in this area. But if we think about NGOs, it's mainly the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, um, who is really keen on a new path forward for the Sahel, and uh, Tony Blair spoke about this on the sidelines of the uh, uh, Munich Security Conference in 2019 or 2018, can't remember which. Um, and so this is a very key policy area for him. Uh, and Alex, I was just uh, interested to get your views on this because you look at at discussion of immigration and and how uh, people are being moved and and people trafficking from this part of Africa, and almost never is the fact that, uh, you know, similar numbers of people are being moved southwards, mentioned, it's almost never mentioned. And uh, there's clearly a policy interest amongst big NGOs and governments in this part of Africa. And so while it's impacting Europe in a particular way, we really got to try to work out what's the root uh, cause that's, that's driving this in the first place.
2: Yes, of course, um, geopolitical news is written up, especially in the English-speaking world. Um, Evelyn Waugh put it best in his 1930s novel Scoop. Uh, He has one of his characters say that uh, what counts as news is that which uh, a man or a chap person uninterested in the world affairs would raise an eyebrow at. That's not an exact quote, but uh, you're you're packaging it to to casual readers, right? So in this particular case, um, if you were to report Africa, internal migration problems, shanty towns people will just think, oh, that's Africa. Um, but if you report pressure on Europe, then people will have a completely different set of narrative ideas in their head. Uh, the more left-wing ones will have their heartstrings tugged, it's all our fault, we're too rich. The right-wing ones will be provoked towards uh, sort of kernel blimp attitude of get, get these out of here. Um, but of course, it ruins the narrative if you actually point out that a particular part of Africa is having a particular dynamic pushing its people out. Uh, and this does indeed go back a long way. Eleanor Roosevelt, in her long decades of widowhood after uh, the US president Roosevelt died just before the end of the uh, Second World War, uh, in her book On My Own, she goes into this in some detail and, uh, and I think recounts how um, just before the end of the war, Roosevelt, to the chagrin of uh, Churchill, in fact, uh, insisted on seeing the Sultan of Morocco, who was then only a titular ruler under the French. And it seems that he told the Sultan of Morocco, I'm sure you'll find great uh, resources of water under your territory don't let any um Uh, conglomerates steal these from you and let this be a long-term strategy for your country. So it was seen back even then. And just to close that, I would say uh, if you look at the quite rapidly changing section at the bottom of our ukcolumn.org homepage called Stories We're Watching, one of the ones that's currently on there is Defence One, one of the very good Washington-based geopolitical and defence issue coverers. Um, uh, There's a headline that we link to at the moment called French and American Special Forces Agree to Beef Up Partnership in Africa now, I'd suggest that, well, you should be watching and reading Ice Age Pharma and uh, Adapt 2030 anyway. Uh, but whenever you see Africa in geopolitical mainstream news, uh, read Sahel. It's a particular part of Africa with oil and more particularly massive underground water resources. And that's the part that's being cleared. So it's not black, white issue. It's uh, within Africa. They can notice in those countries around Congo and Kenya what's going on as well. Uh, That zone is being cleared out for what will probably be a three way punch up between China, Russia, and the Anglo-American West. Uh,
1: Indeed. And just uh, very briefly, Alex, of course, uh, uh, part one of the things that's driving this is is Islamic insurgency, which you know, we have seen in Syria and other places, uh, we've seen a lot of Western money going into support over the last uh, 10 years.
2: Yes, it's, it's a very obscure area. But uh, those, for example, who've been following the issue of religious persecution in the Sahel countries, notably northern Nigeria and central Nigeria, um, and this applies more widely, by the way, these people are very eloquent in English and French. They have their own proper TV channels. It's not the 1960s. Uh, you can easily find online Africans speaking eloquently about their own stuff uh, and interpreting the world and their own part of the world uh, in good English and French. So you don't need to rely on Western journalists. But absolutely, um, the, the, the issue, particularly I've seen in Nigeria, if you speak to locals, for example, church leaders, local council people, uh, they will say these problems came in overnight. They had no root in our previous history. Uh, there was no previous form of African Islam or Christianity that le- that uh, that gave rise to the uh, communal violence that you saw. Uh, And of course, it's often blamed on competition for water or other natural resources, but there's far more to it than that. Uh, There's an overnight whipping up of hate, which seems to concur pretty closely with when the Brits arrive.
1: Okay, thank you for that. Now let's move on to uh, Green New Deal and uh, the EU. Now, of course, uh, a week or so ago, we were reporting on the European Commission adopting its uh, new package of uh, green proposals uh, to deal with climate, energy, land use, transport, tax, uh, and so on. And uh, we were highlighting the fact that, uh, uh, if you remember, they were proposing exempting private jets from their, from whatever policy they were going to push through. Uh, they're calling this uh, fit for 55 because they're intending to uh, bring uh, net greenhouse gas emissions, as they describe it, uh, by, down by at least 55% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels. Um, so there's been quite a bit of pushback, however, in the last week from indus- industry, from uh, especially the car industry. Um, and uh, so the French government and the Italian government have uh, had to react. Uh, this is you And uh, the headline here is French President Macron meets auto sector representatives. Um, and uh, they're saying, uh, this is, they, they quote the automotive, uh, uh, it's PFA, I'm not sure whether it's a, a, an industry group or not, but it's uh, their president, uh, Luc Chatel saying the EU is throwing away a hundred years of European know-how and chooses a technology in which the Chinese are 10 years in advance. They're talking about uh, battery technology for cars and so on. Uh, But here is is Luke uh, Di Maio, uh, the Italian foreign minister, and he's uh, gone a bit further. He's saying there's somebody in Europe who thinks an ecological transition could be completed in two years. Ecological transition will work only if our companies uh, and our productive systems, but also professionals will have enough time to adapt to transformation. Otherwise, it won't be a transition. It will be a shock. Uh, We will produce a drop in emissions, which, however, will correspond correspond to a loss of jobs and the shutdown of companies. We're not asking to block the process of European Green deal, but we're just calling for more time in order to be able to deal with the coming period. Well, he makes a reasonable point, but he's not still quite understanding the situation, is he? Because if we remember uh, back uh, a year or two, uh, Mark Carney, who is uh, currently... uh, Dwaris Johnson's advisor on climate issues, was making it absolutely clear that what he was driving for was a shock, uh, that companies must uh, transform themselves overnight or they will be bankrupted. There's no question about this. Um, They've got to proceed with uh, progress very, very quickly with the Green New Deal and the Great Reset policy or else, and that includes any finance companies that want to fund companies that don't uh, behave as well. So uh, this is clearly moving forward
0: very quickly. Very quickly. And uh, of course, uh, an organisation that's not going to talk about it is our old friend, the BBC. But it's taken Russia today to poke a big uh, or put a big rock into the BBC pond. Um, Very interesting series of stories which encourage people to go and read. Uh, This is the lead one from the 20th of July. Uh, Shocking Uh, Leaked files once again expose BBC's insidious UK foreign policy tool. Um, Newly released raft of government papers. Now, these have come out anonymous sources, but there's a lot of detail in the article. And I'm going to encourage you to go and read that detail and see what it's talking about. But it's revealing that the BBC has got extensive involvement in spreading what RT says is pro-London, pro-EU, pro-NATO messaging across the Balkans. And these uh, particular documents um, state that uh, BBC Media Action, the charitable arm of the BBC state broadcaster, according to RT, was embroiled in a number of clandestine operations to quote, weaken the Russian state's influence. And of course, all of that was funded by the UK Foreign Office. So the message to the UK Population is uh, the nasty Russians are almost queuing up at the borders to invade, but now we start to see something rather different happening. So the exposure raised serious questions about the BBC's international reputation as neutral, objective purveyor of news, and what implications its murky relationship with Whitehall has for its output more widely. A further tranche of leaked files related to covert UK actions in the Balkans amply reinforces that the organisation serves as a, quote, cloak and dagger device for achieving London's foreign policy goals.
1: And we should just say that article was written by Kit Clarenberg.
0: Yes. um, So do read this because uh, this is not just a sort of casual analysis. This is an in-depth analysis. Let's have a look at some of the things that are being said. So Um, I'm happy to label the BBC as the propaganda arm operating in the Balkans, but of course they're using their charity as the soft front end. That's the soft power being used. Uh, But what are they up to? Media capacity building reform and change management. Uh, That's quite in your face. Uh, So we've got Reforming Institutional Structures, a Montenegro state broadcaster, RTCG, Uh, We've got working with the Macedonian media to effectively cover elections and, quote, act as watchdog, that smile, the thought of the BBC making sure there was an even hand in elections, Uh, support the development of Bosnia and Herzegovina's public broadcasting system, targeting youth audiences in five Balkans countries with an innovative multi-platform media project aiming to build young people's capacity for civic participation. And what Russia Today noted, quite rightly, is that viewers were directed to offline activities to translate awareness into action for change. And Russia Today said, and again, I think this is is quite correct, it's strongly suggesting that stirring teenagers to activism was the the overall program's ultimate objective. Mm -hmm. And I think that's Very, very clear. Um, I've got a bit more and then we'll bring Alex in to comment on this one. Uh, So here's Serbia. Um, What was going on? Well, from 2007 to 2017, uh, four large scale projects, such as a challenging undertaking with radio, television, Serbia. Um, That was over two years to assist in its transition from state to public service broadcaster and working to quote professionalize five local radio stations to develop their capacity to hold local government to account. This is some charity might so say. So this is
1: what, BBC-ifying the, uh, uh, the local media? Yes, yes.
0: absolutely. And uh, this one here, the organization also delivered a huge three-year project for the European Union, which quote strengthened media capacities for improving objective public information about all aspects of EU integration. In other words, it assisted in the production of pro-Brussels propaganda. The the words in the text in yellow there, obviously from Russia Today itself. Vital work indeed, considering Serbian citizens remain by far the most skeptical about bloc membership. And um, we've got this one here, uh, uh, a statement from RT, with the troublesome Socialist Federation of Yugoslavia now Irrevocably smashed into pieces, Whitehall needn't threaten the use of military force to compel Balkan media outlets to transmit pro-Western propaganda. It simply dispatches BBC staffers to their offices under the bogus ages of promoting media diversity, free expression, democracy, civic participation, and fostering debate uh, to ensure they remain acceptable instruments of public information so a lot of uh, sarcasm in that uh, particular paragraph Uh, we've got a little bit more to cover but alex russia today absolutely hitting uh, the business uh, the nail on the head because um, we have warned as i'll show in in just a moment that bbc media action is used as a propaganda arm of the bbc and the state but this is uh, absolutely in your face
2: I think the key there, Brian, was the embedded BBC image that you showed, uh, because the uh, text that went with it is uh, supporting independent media in the Eastern Partnership countries. Which organization puts the uh, former communist countries that aren't in the EU into the bracket Eastern Partnership?
0: It is the EU
2: itself. It's an EU term, right? The BBC is taking an EU Perspective, or the two organizations are taking the same perspective. Uh, People, if you want to look at the history of this in one person, uh, Georgia is probably the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, of course, is one of the best performing EU NATO aspirants. And so we can add a third uh, organization to that triumvirate, which is BBC aspirant country. And some of its journalists, like Natalia Antelava, who 10, 15 years ago was the main BBC woman in her own country of Georgia, got so good at this game uh, that after a few remakes, for example, I think at one stage she turned her hair purple and whatnot, Uh, she was then dispatched to lesser performing pupils like Ukraine in order to do the same, to rejig their media. So that whether you're talking drama, you focused on uh, Central Asia, Brian, and your article that's still at the bottom of the UK column homepage about BBC media action from some years ago, whether it's soap opera stuff or whether it's news, the strategy is the same. Here is the news. That's what a state broadcaster would do. And then, as the BBC says, BBC says, you need to make the twist to public broadcaster, by which they mean you add, but many people are very unhappy. Cut to very enraged young person. Then you have got your complete drama or package. That's balance from the BBC's perspective.
1: Um, yes. and Just before you go on, Brian, I just wanted to say in the chat box, the, the, the statement or the question was, is is Uh, BBC licence fee money being used for this? No, it is not. This is a separate budget. It comes from the Foreign Office directly. If you look for uh, all Foreign Office spending over £25,000, you'll find a monthly report which lists uh, what they spend. And BBC Media Action is receiving multiple millions of pounds uh, from the Foreign Office directly in order to to do this stuff. So although it is Representing the BBC in the sense that it's a BBC charity and they share their pension pot and things like this, uh, it's very much getting a separate tranche of money for it, and it is UK government soft power in
0: action. Yes. Well, the art. <coughs> excuse me. The article we've just shown you from Russia Today is linked through to this uh, other article. Leaked papers allege massive UK government effort to co-opt Russian language, anti-Kremlin media and influencers to quote weaken the Russian state. Now that was back in February 21. uh, But what of course was in this article uh, was mention of the zinc network. And so let's just bring this in. One program zinc bid for is support for independent media in the Balkan states. The leaked papers included the statement of requirement for the project as well as the details that were spelled out to contractors at a meeting convened June 2018 with um, our old friend. Ca- yes, our old friend, the counter disinformation and media development chief, Andy Price, along with a parallel operation in Easter partnership countries. Um, so, what were they doing here? Delivering audience segmentation and targeting support for two of Russia's leading independent media outlets, Medusa and Media Zona. And what RT points out is that both of these are hostile to Russia. They were doing a lot more besides, but this is the particular focus of this part of the article. And uh, Media Zona was originally founded by two of the Pussyfoot Riot members. So the, uh, the, the government's come in to help support those upstanding young people. I believe they're women. And... Uh, Um, the Russians picking up on this.
1: Uh, Just before you move on, Brian, just to point out the Zinc Network is a successor to the Integrity Initiative. So this is a follow-on from that project.
0: Yes. And uh, so this is is the article's quote around Andy Price. It's not what the man said himself. The support for independent media in the Balkan states set to cost up to 6 million 2018-2021 is ultimately concerned with weakening the Russian state. And Price warned attendees against unauthorized disclosure of activity and noted that for security reasons, some suppliers will not wish to be linked to the uh, uh, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Okay, and uh, let's just remind ourselves um, a while ago, we were asking questions about uh, the Behavioural Insights team and. why they were using uh, stress and anxiety in the covid situation around us um, so this is uh, what we'd sent them in an email we got no reply at the time uh, we were having a look at the behavioral insights team global board we were very interested in David Halpin a key man but we we're also interested in this lady Janet Baker from the cabinet office and her LinkedIn page took us through and uh, well extensive experience but let's move through quickly Um, what do we actually come up with Uh, this one here that she's involved with zinc and uh, if we look at zinc itself uh, we help our clients deliver meaningful measurable change around some of the most complex social issues facing the world today Uh, so have a look on their website for the detail Uh, but it says that uh, for it to get involved it must tackle one of the great unmet needs in the developed world uh, the target addressable market must exceed 100 million people and there must be lots of unexploited opportunities to quote disrupt so i think it's uh, pretty obvious what's going on they're funded or were at the time we made this report at the london school of economics and as alex has just said if you look on the uk column uh, website, we've been warning about the actions of BBC Media Action since 2014. So propaganda and subversion being carried out by the British government with the help of a charity called BBC Media Action.
1: Uh, let's move on to defence issues. And this was in the Times, I think on Sunday, uh, military chief reveals new secret role for secret f- for special forces against China and Russia. Um, so they are citing uh, Brigadier Mark Totten, who's a commander, well, let's bring him on screen. Uh, here he is, he's uh, com- uh, com- in charge of the future commando force. Um, and uh, he was uh, quoted as saying, for example, you could send 25 guys from a special operation from special operations to Africa, carrying out counterterrorism and send four guys from the SAS to somewhere in the South China Sea. Uh, and this would need uh, to be a lower pro- profile uh, and is politically more treacherous. I find this uh, very interesting quote because he could have said politically more sensitive or he could have used quite a number of other words there, uh, Alex, but uh, he chose the word treacherous, which of course treachery is treason. So I'm not clear if he was sending some kind of uh, message there, but also you'll notice on the on his arm, he's wearing an EU NAV4 uh, badge because uh, he, when he was not a brigadier, when he was a colonel, was uh, chief of staff of EU NAV4. But anyway, uh, the Future Commando Force uh, is the rebranding of uh, the Royal Marines, um, and uh, it is gonna be taking over some of the tasks which are normally given to the SAS and the SBS, the special boat service, um, and they're gonna be focusing on Russia and China. Uh, What we'll be able to do is to allow special forces to focus on more difficult, more complex counter-Russia, counter-China tasks. Uh, It takes real specialist expertise, So we will allow them to have more time and people to address those. And we can conduct some of the tasks such as maritime counterterrorism, for example, or partnered operations where it's difficult and where there's a higher risk. Um, And they also make the point that, uh, uh, The Times rather makes the point that uh, this will be operating alongside MI6 uh, to mount uh, surveillance operations against the Chinese and the Russians. Um, Well, I just want to go back to March Um, And to remind everybody when the Defence Review, um, because we covered this at the time, and this is really more information on what was said. So first of all, Ben Wallace, um, talking about a vast global footprint, we will be constantly operating to deter our adversaries and reassure our friends, integrating with our allies and ready to fight should it be necessary. So what we have seen is that the EU Defence Union, the integration of EU member states, seems to be broadening out to be a transatlantic alliance much tighter than uh, the NATO even was and NATO itself being retasked with respect to already Russia but respect to China as well. Uh, At the same time then we had Mark Carlton Smith uh, who's Chief of the Defence Staff uh, saying um, the creation of the Rangers is the uh, alongside the Uh, this new Royal Marines uh, Task Force will free up special forces to focus on the more persistent and lethal threats associated with hostile state actors. Um, And uh, Wallace again saying uh, that last autumn, the Chief of Defence Staff set out his plans for how we'll operate through the integrated operating concept. These uh, terms should all make people feel very safe. Um, We must work with allies to make most of the new technologies improve integration across all domains, And throughout the spectrum of conflict. The Secretary of State's Office of Net Assessment and Challenge will encompass wargaming, doctrine, red teaming and external academic analysis. Uh, Office of Net Assessment and Challenge, another term which should make us all feel very safe. Uh, The widespread use of cyber organized crime, electronic warfare, proxy fighters and disinformation uh, can be seen in nearly every continent. And this is uh, very much a focus of, of what they're doing. So uh, the integrated operating concept then, uh, the central idea of that is offensive rather than defensive. And I think this is really key because what we're saying is uh, the Ministry of Defence really being uh, transformed into the military of offence. Um, and just to remind everybody what uh, Nick Carter, the Chief of the Defence Staff said, the nature of war remains constant, it's visceral and violent. It's always about politics. Uh, What is changing is the character of warfare, what's evolving significantly due to the pervasiveness of information and the pace of technological change. Uh, And uh, he said uh, we need a new model for deterrence that takes account of the need to compete. And of course, another term that they were uh, pushing very hard and still are was fusion doctrine. And when you look at what this means, and these are their diagrams of what it means. Focus, they're, they're certainly talking about focusing on the Sahel, region of Africa. So we're back to that again, building markets in uh, in emerging economies, enforcing the rules-based international order, addressing the root causes of conflict and tackling cross-border threats. This is what they were talking about. And uh, and a little bit more on the integrated operating concept. Uh, It's to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others. In other words, offensive. Um, And uh, but maximizing advantage will only be realized through being more integrated within the military instrument, vertically through the levels of war, strategic, operational, and tactical across government and with our allies and uh, in depth within our societies. This is all about our safety, so we don't need to worry. Uh, The old distinction they went on to say between foreign and domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant. And this was another quite chilling thing, Uh, when fake news appears to originate not abroad but at home it gains credibility and reach stoking confusion disagreement division and doubt in our societies this has been particularly evident with the significant uptick in disinformation and misinformation during the coronavirus crisis home he said is no longer a secure sanctuary whence we may choose to launch interventions unhindered away is no longer a regional horizon but a global one involving space and the electromagnetic spectrum but actually alex uh, what uh, 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 Carter was was saying was uh, in in his uh, presentation was that you know when the military go abroad they know who the enemy is when they're abroad they're in theater. Uh, it used to be that when they come home they they're back home and they're safe, uh, but it's no longer the case that they're safe back home. He was very much suggesting that uh, home is as much a threat as away. So we're seeing this these narratives of integration, bringing everything together. Uh, of disinformation, misinformation, and the threat from home? And uh, should we feel safe under these circumstances?
2: No, and this is a 50-year-old script at least. Uh, we've had the disruption because of losing some video platforms, but soon we hope to get back up to talks uh, called Emergency Briefing from 2018 at Totnes, which address different angles of this. And in mine, I talk about how... Uh, In 1982, the first edition of the Hut Six story by Gordon Welchman, and he's the unsung hero of GCHQ's wartime effort, um, describes how in the 1970s, the MITRE Corporation, very closely embedded with NSA as a contractor, uh, called Gordon Welchman out of retirement back in the 70s and gave him exactly that script to speak, which he uh, blabbed actually and, and did in a chapter. Uh, at the end of his book, which was pulled from any future uh, reprints of that book. Uh, And the key line in that suppressed chapter was the enemy from now on is going to be at home and we need to keep our guard up, basically. And David Scott has filmed this happening in a homecoming parade on the streets of his own city of Perth, Uh, the guns out as if they were still in uh, enemy territory. So this this is a long-term script. I've seen the embedding of special uh, special forces going on in war zones in the 2000s when I was a GCHQ officer. It's never been avowed there, but it's now being, like a lot of the other super secret stuff, spun out and almost shouted as a kind of trophy force. While you were going through this, the thing I was thinking mainly was everything's being promoted, so special forces are becoming super special forces. Subspecial forces are becoming special forces. Conventionals are becoming specials. So in the end, that means mass conscription is going to be needed uh, to stand up to the conventional forces of Russia and China. Sorry, but that's the long and the short of it. Otherwise, we won't stand a chance against them.
1: Well, that's assuming that we want to be uh, getting uh, into that kind of conflict in the first place.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that that rising hierarchy you've described um, spot on, Alex. And where are the troops going to come from? Well, they're going to come from any nation that's gullible enough to get sucked into this globalist plan. So what, what we're hearing about from UK, uh, that's the angle we're discussing today, is that we're going to take control of other nations and their human assets in order to form the armies we, we need.
1: Uh, I think that is absolutely right. And that was a key part of this integrated operating concept. Britain was presenting itself as the glue that binds together the integration. So they're providing all the all the back office roles uh, and uh, they may have some specialist uh, roles, for example, this future commando force, but really we are providing the doctrine and the ideology that goes with this. We're providing the, the comms networks, we're providing the satellite communications and this kind of stuff, and uh, but when you when you listen to it and when you read what they're saying, I mean, just remind everybody one of the concepts that they are absolutely promoting that uh, Mark Cotton Smith and uh, Nick Carter are promoting is this concept that war is no longer a binary position. You're not either at war or at peace. It's it's a it's a spectrum that you're on, um, and so in other words, they they are very much hoping for. Uh, the idea that we are in a persistent war, a perpetual war. Alex?
2: Look, there was a brief period of Pax Romana. And after that, Rome overextended itself because it thought it had taken on the burden of civilising the world. So it always needed its auxiliaries and its uh, Senate-controlled provinces in order to push its boundary back. There was also an economic bubble, bubble. Uh, impent, um, imperative there, that if they stopped moving, they would collapse under their own weight by the bureaucracy by that time. So all of this uh, vicious circle, we're, we're now on that, that pathway. We're about the third century in Roman Empire terms. And it's it's very closely uh, mappable onto what we were talking about with the BBC as a, as an um, overseas arm now of, of the Anglo-American world domination project or the deep state project, uh, because they are getting together the auxiliaries. We'll go into this more in more detail in extra time for subscribers uh, in several case studies from Eastern Europe. These auxiliaries are necessary to do the legwork so that our really suave operators can do the really hard work, pitting themselves directly against the Russians.
1: Uh, yes, now uh, they, they mentioned uh, the future commando force working with uh, MI6, um, but what's MI6 up to?
2: Well, this is a good website, Daily Maverick in South Africa, and they are uh, staying on the case of Alan Duncan's memoirs. He was the junior minister in British parlance, the Secretary of State, Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, the junior minister rather than Secretary of State uh, at the uh, Foreign Office, and uh, he, he produced some rather if you'll pardon the expression, bitchy memoirs, they were, catty, shall we say, uh, in which he blabbed on several things, one of which was that the Sultan of Oman, one of Britain's key protectorates in, in the Gulf, uh, had a Privy Council, which was stuffed with MI6 types. They've gone further into that, and they've now said that there's an entire secret Whitehall Committee at the Ministry of Defence that holds no records. Gulf Advisory Group, according to the uh, the key points they've put below the headline, and it uh, it took some of the I have to say my least favourite, but I'll give them their due. My least favourite social justice warrior, Labour um, party representatives, alias members of Parliament, uh, did did some digging here, and uh, they were first at first fobbed off, and also the ex SNP man Kenny MacAskill, he of the Lockerbie fiasco, who's now in Alex Salmon's new party, Alba, in Scotland, uh, Kenny MacAskill, and I think it's. Um, um one of the coventry mps uh, sultana uh, who's quite a social justice warrior they kept at the case initially being told that the group you're asking about doesn't exist and found that there was actually a gulf advisory group at the ministry of defense it keeps no records this cuts across of course all echr type proprietary transparency of government and everything else that britain shouts from the rooftops but even it's not even really mod it's mi6 uh, it, it allows itself to post to be posted out to the gulf and, and tell them what to do
1: um, okay, and we've got a, a quote from this. The meeting has only come to light five years later because of the Alan Duncan uh, memoirs. So, uh, okay, we'll keep uh, keep an eye on that and see how that story develops. Uh, but now another story that's uh, developing that we've mentioned on Monday, of course, is uh, uh, the uh, NSO group, uh, the Israeli uh, security group that has produced software, which apparently uh, is installable on by governments on mobile phones. Um, and uh, makes those phones effectively open to various agencies. So uh, N- uh, NSO Group's customers, 51% of them are intelligence agencies, 38% uh, law enforcement agencies, 11% military uh, and uh, 60 customers in 40 countries, is how they describe themselves. Uh, and uh, But it's okay, they turn away customers uh, if uh, they aren't ethical. Now, some people are asking, well, how does this work? Uh, because I'm using encrypted channels in order to uh, communicate with with people. Well, of course, uh, if you consider an encrypted channel, if you're looking at WhatsApp or you're looking at uh, uh, Telegram or so on, that only works. It's the, the connection between the two devices which is encrypted, so the encryption works uh, across the network. And even assuming that that encryption can't be broken, and I don't have any evidence that it can, and even assuming there aren't any backdoors in that uh, encryption, and again, there's no evidence that there are, although MPs are calling for it. The key issue is, can the intelligence services or governments or the military or the police uh, get control of one of the endpoints? Because the only uh, benefit to encryption and with, even with end-to-end encryption uh, is on the network itself. On the phone, of course, the content is unencrypted, otherwise you couldn't write it and you couldn't read it. So if uh, the uh, agencies can get access to the phone, Um, and they can install their software on there then of course you are hemorrhaging perhaps uh, data from your microphone, it could be used as a bug, Uh, it could be used uh, to uh, log text messages as they're being typed in uh, to WhatsApp and Telegram or as they're being received. Um, So end-to-end encryption is only useful up to a point Um, but as we have a look at this. Uh, We've got a statement from the United States here, uh, from the White House saying the United States joined by allies and partners attributes malicious cyber activity to irresponsible state behavior to the People's Republic of China. So this comes back to what we were talking about a second ago, but the question here, Alex, I've got to say is, what what position are we in to be criticizing China or anybody else under these circumstances when we are employing uh, an Israeli company to hack people's phones on the behalf of our governments. Uh, I'm not aware that there's any direct evidence being made public yet that China's doing this, but we now have more evidence. Uh, we've had plenty of evidence in the past, uh, that but, but more evidence that the British governments, the British government, Western governments are doing exactly that.
2: Well, it's uh, all five eyes countries, and I, I remember speaking in two thousand and eighteen at Totnes about this at some length about Israel as the sixth eye, or the, the the eye that sits above the five and sucks up this data through contractors, but you know through con- through controlling the deals that the governments of these countries sign with 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 commercial actors. It's uh, it's it really is. Uh, able in, at the level of Units A200, the Israeli Signals Intelligence Agency, to hoover up whatever it wants. So we're in no position whatsoever. I mean, one of the other Five Eyes countries, uh, Australia, hosts a company called Appen, APPEN. And it took a Dutch journalist, Mark von miroop to uh, write a whole book recently called, uh, sorry, Uwe uh, Modekolk, I think his name is, Het is Urloch Maniem It is a, a war, but no one can see it. And he goes into detail on, he's not the only one, I've seen it personally too, Appen approaches linguists with a profile on various translation and transcription websites and says, do you want to transcribe material for us? It turns out to be chatter picked up from people's phone microphones, you know, sort of third world immigrant taxi drivers in the West who speak rare and interesting dialects of interest to the military in the West. Uh, So, you know, we have uh, absolutely no leg to stand on from the tactical to the strategic, we do it all.
1: Yes, now just briefly, uh, The Guardian is uh, leading this really with a a bunch of other uh, organisations, this exposure its a result of a whistleblower. Um, But... uh, (laughs) 50,000 people uh, are the, the number of people that are uh, supposed to have this um, uh, spyware on their phones so far, not just journalists and activists, but also some world leaders apparently. So uh, we've got the South African president, we've got Emmanuel Macron listed, uh, Tedros, uh, or the World Health Organization's director general is on there. Uh, we've got uh, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, uh, a couple of uh, senior Moroccan uh, um, politicians, uh, Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of uh, Pakistan, uh, and so the list goes on. So it's not just it's not just uh, activists and journalists, although it's mainly activists and journalists. Alex, but I mean, what is going on when heads of state are being targeted?
2: That's that's Israel. I'll wager that uh that that's not a okay china wants to get into the big league of signing uh, players which it hasn't previously been in the big 5 um so obviously they would like in a nice to have world of, of all their target wish lists to have those heads of state and, and who types but the emphasis on the activists and the emphasis on those particular countries of interest like morocco and pakistan make it pretty clear to me that's israel
1: yes and alex uh, just briefly um because of course we got to remember where this began it was really with Uh, John Poindexter and uh, DARPA and the Information Awareness Office, I think at the turn of the century or 2001. Um, This uh, logo didn't stick around too long because it became a little bit uh, hot to handle, controversial and so on. But of course, what was being being planned and being developed under the auspices of the Information Awareness Office was what eventually Edward Snowden blew the whistle on. Uh, It's what Bill Binney's blowing the whistle on. Um, and uh, and that what we're seeing is a succession of these types of programmes. But it really sort of began here, didn't didn't it?
2: Well, yeah, I I was at the conference. I didn't quite get the T-shirt, but I was at the inaugural NSA conference for Five Eyes Analysts on uh, intelligence analysis. Uh, I think it's an annual event now. I went in 2004 and I remember remember Mike Hayden, the then director, General Hayden, sorry, of the NSA, and Admiral Poindexter and uh, the GCHQ contingent, including yours truly, asked a few questions. And I remember Poindexter colouring up like a beetroot being asked about that. Not that logo, but the TIA, the Total Information Awareness Package. Uh, They couldn't defend it even to a room of their own patsies. Uh, So embarrassed were they. Psychologically, I'd say the only rationale is that below all the levels of filthy Anglo-American deep state, Israel is there and they knew that they were treasonous.
0: Yes. Perhaps we should just add a little bit into that. So interesting now that DARPA has got into the uh, medicine, health and genomics industry. Uh, but a lot more to come out on that little uh, uh, link. Uh,
1: yes, but uh, well, we're right out of time. Uh, but Alex, uh, we we do have an ending uh, an ending slide here. So uh, tell us about this one.
2: Yes, this uh, has been tweeted out by Gavin Ashenden. Uh, a well-known dissident cleric, formerly one of the Queen's chaplains until he got the boot. Um, But it's originally featured in the Times. So for those who are listening uh, without a picture, uh, it's a Church of England parish church uh, with two altar servers attending to the candles and and, uh, straightening out the altar cloth. But in front of the altar cloth has gone a little flag, obscuring whatever Christian logo is there, underneath a crown of flowers, and it says, National Health Service, we thank you. Uh, that is making the National Health Service an object of worship, isn't it? I think there's no two ways about that. No,
1: I think that's, that's pretty clear.
0: Yes, uh, but we've exposed in this news what's really happening to the NHS behind the scenes, which is that it's dissolving um, incredibly quickly as we're looking to this future policy on what healthcare is in partnership with the French.
1: Um, well, we had quite a bit of material that we didn't get through, so we'll, we'll cover some of that on extra time in a few minutes on the uh, UK Column live stream, but uh, otherwise we'll be back on uh, on Friday at 1pm as usual, unless well, there's something else you particularly wanted to, to do.
0: I, I was only going to say that um, there was a couple of people asking about Vanessa while we were doing the news. Vanessa is uh, well, but conducting her own business at the moment, and hopefully we'll be able to hear more from her shortly. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye.